we are wrapping up our series in the life of David. This will be 2 Samuel 23, not 2 Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7, as we conclude the life of David that we've been journeying in for the last several months. We have followed David through the journey of the prophecy that God gave that he would be the ruler over God's people. David's journey to, his, to the throne despite the several threats and persecution, the establishment of God's kingdom through David, his covenant promise to him, David's own personal struggles with sin, and then finally his restoration. And we come to this passage of scripture here, which are the last recorded words of David. The final thing that he has to say, the last thing that he wants to impart to the people of God And to us, you can say the one thing that he wants people to remember about him and about his life. Follow along with me as I read from 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, which means that what you're about to hear is a little bit awkward. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secured. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? The worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron from the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the hope that David saw, the hope that David proclaimed the hope that Jesus saw, the hope that Jesus proclaimed, and the hope that Jesus fulfilled. Lord, give us insight into your word here this morning. Amen. In 1692, there was a Scottish preacher by the name of Thomas Hogg, and he had some final words for his congregation. But the way that he was going to impart his last words to his congregation was a little bit different way than you might expect. You see, he was very concerned about how many people were walking away from the Lord in his day and time. He was concerned about preachers who were neglecting the Word of God and forsaking the Word of God and compromising the Word of God. And he was concerned about the increase of godlessness and immorality in his culture. And so what he had is he had his last words engraved on his tombstone. And he had it arranged with the church that when he died, he would be buried in the threshold of the church. Right underneath, that would be our exit sign right here. So that every person that walks into church would walk upon his tombstone and walk upon his last words. And these were the words. This stone shall bear witness against the parishioners of Kiltern Church if they bring an ungodly minister in here. And so his tombstone was a, living, was a witness to future generations that if the parishioners of the church brought in an ungodly pastor or called an ungodly pastor, 
that he would be in the doorway bearing witness against that congregation. Powerful last words. You consider some of the people in our day and age who you might be interested in what their last words would be. Maybe it's a hero that you have. You think about some of the Christians that God has used in remarkable ways with international ministries. You know, Billy Graham, who's in his 90s now, if you knew that he was about to give his last words, you'd probably want to pay attention to those things, right? Because you're like, what was a man who has done, who has God has used in so many remarkable ways? What did he have to say? What is it that he would want to pass on? And so that's exactly the situation that we find David in here. David knows that these are going to be his final word before the Lord takes him to be with him. His final official words of record, that would be. Certainly he said other things after this was recorded. And you think about this, of all that David's been through in his life, how the Lord raised him, the shepherd to the king, how the Lord protected him, preserved him, watched over his life, how the Lord taught him to be faithful, to be humble, to rely on him. What would David say? Would it be, you need to resist temptation? Don't be like me, like with Bathsheba. You need to persevere to the end. A song, maybe he'll leave words on how to have faith in God and what it means to have a reliant, dependent faith upon the Lord. But David doesn't do those things. It's that David focuses his final words, which I believe that he would review as his parting legacy. The one thing that he wants the people of God to be left with, he wants us to be left with, was the very same thing that was the hallmark of Jesus' preaching. It was the one thing that Jesus preached about more than any other topic. Indeed, it was the characterization of what Jesus' ministry was about, was that Jesus came and he went to towns and villages preaching the kingdom of God. And David, in his final words, he wants us to have a clear understanding about the very nature of God's kingdom. You know, it's remarkable. Despite David's emphasis on this, despite Jesus' emphasis on this, I would venture to say that most Christians could not have correctly identified what, the main mes- what Jesus' main message was. I bet most Christians could not have identified that Jesus preached the topic of the kingdom of God more than he preached about anything else. I don't think that's what they would have said. How quickly we as Christians and the people of God disregard Jesus' main message and David's main message. How, we, how much we don't understand what is going on here at the very center of God's plan of redemption for this world. So as we enter into this passage, which is a little bit of a puzzle, this oracle that we go into, there are a couple of things that David is emphasizing that he wants us to be, un- be confident and he wants to ensure that we know. The first is this, is that God's kingdom is sure. It is certain. And the reason why God's kingdom is sure and certain is because God has spoken. Up until this point, there have been multiple threats against the establishment of God's kingdom. The first king of Israel was a total failure. David himself, God's anointed one, committed grievous sin and was sent into exile and brought back. A number of things had threatened the establishment of God's kingdom. And so David wants us to know that God's kingdom is sure. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. Remarkable claim. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. David is asserting and declaring that what what comes from his mouth in this oracle is what comes from God. That what David speaks is what God speaks. It is not human opinion. 
It is not conjecture. It is a divine decree. Now, if you're a skeptic here this morning, you might look at that and say, well, isn't that convenient? Isn't that just circular arguing? To say that, would you, that, that okay, Christians believe that the Bible's God's word, this oracle's God's word, simply because it says it's God's word. Isn't that circular? And I understand why you would state that. But let me briefly respond to that and just, just say this. Is that the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture is remarkably attested to. And one of the ways that the truth of Scripture, that it is God's word, is, the, is known is because the writers of Scripture actually knew that they were penning the word of God. That is not true with most other books that are regarded as sacred writings. The writers did not know, nor did they assert that they were writing the word of God. But not so with the writers of Scripture. They had the authority to do so. And they were the authority for them to write the word of God, and what they said was validated among their peers. And the Bible is unique in its divine authorization, and it is unique in its divine and cultural attestation to its divine origins. There's a whole lot more that can be said about this. There's a whole lot more of questions that need to be answered. If those are questions for you about why do we believe the Bible to be God's word, I believe that there are reasonable and good answers for that, and I'd love to sit down and talk, that with, talk through that with you. Myself, others at our church would help you to understand why is it that Christians actually believe that the Bible is God's word. If you don't understand that, I would encourage you not to reject God's word until you understand why Christians actually believe it is God's word. But to David's point here in this passage, David is asserting that what he speaks is, is God's, word, God's word. Why? It's because if what he says is God's word, then what he says is a sure word. And if what he says is a sure word, then it is a certain word. That what he is about to declare, that if God speaks, it is certain. There are no ifs, no ands, no buts. It will come to pass. You know, sometimes people say, Something like, uh, is it written in the laws of the Medes and Persians? People use that phrase today. And the reason why they say that, because it was known and has been known that if something is written in the laws of the Medes and the Persians, that law cannot be changed. But what David is asserting, asserting is that there is something more sure. There is something that is absolutely certain. And it is what he's about to say because it has been decreed by God Almighty and it will not be altered and it will not be changed. And unlike the laws of the Medes of the Persians, God is certain and determined that what he says will happen and shall come to pass. He asserts it again in verse 5. That God has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. That's legal terminology. We would say that God's covenant, his promise, has been signed, sealed, and delivered. It is certain to come to pass that the hope of the eternal king and the eternal covenant is guaranteed because it is from God's word. Now, you may be here sitting here thinking, saying, okay, yes, God's word is true. God's word speaks. God does what he says. Why does this matter to us? Why is this encouraging? I believe why we need to hear this is for this reason, is that we would not look around at our world you would not read the newspapers, you would not scan the headlines, you would not look at the chaos and the turmoil in our world and look at the latest news reports and say, yes, the kingdom of God is here. Yes, the kingdom of God is certain. Yes, it is secure. When you consider the 
gyrations of dictators and dynasties and presidential candidates. Can you look at that and say, yes, I am so confident, that is so clear now that the kingdom of God is established and secure. Can you look at the the challenges in your own life, your personal turmoil, family dysfunctions, the struggles that you have, and say, yes, it is so clear that the kingdom of God is at work in every person in my family who calls themselves a Christian. There is such overwhelming evidence of the abundance of God's fruitfulness in their life. Most likely not. And when you look at senseless tragedies, evil, the latest headlines, what's going on in Charlotte, North Carolina, can you look at that and say, yes, it is clear the word of God, the kingdom of God is sure. I think that there's very little in the circumstances that we face in our life, very little that would lead us to conclude that the kingdom of God is sure. That life is stable. And the reason why David asserts this, I believe, is because the kingdom of God and the certainty of the kingdom of God is not guaranteed by sure circumstances. Rather, it is guaranteed by a sure word, and that is the word of God, the decree of God, And because God decrees it, it is a divine certainty that it will come to pass. I look at my own life. I don't know how I could live without the sure confidence of God's kingdom. I don't know how I could process and understand the turmoil of this world without the sure confidence that God's kingdom is a definitive reality that will come to be. I don't know how I, as a pastor of this church, could enter into the mess and turmoil that God calls me to enter into. I don't know how I could do that without the sure confidence that the kingdom of God is certain, that the kingdom of God will come to pass, that it is a definitive thing, not because my circumstances cry out and saying, yes, it is so apparent that the kingdom of God is real, but rather because the word of God, which is certain and true, says it to be so. And David wants us to know that. The kingdom of God is sure. Second thing that he emphasized in the next couple of verses is after determining that it is a certain reality, David wants to create within us a longing for God's kingdom. He describes God's kingdom in its abundant nature and for us to know that God's kingdom is abundant. He uses an image in verses 3 through 4. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? David uses this image of light at sunrise, sunrise, rays of sunshine after the rain on the grass. Images of light, sun, rain, sprouting grass, images that convey hope, refreshment, reviving, healing, renewal, invigorating, all of these being the life-giving effects under the reign of this king. In fact, he kind of he gives it as a as a proverb that those who are under those leaders and kings who rule justly, who rule in the fear of God, the subjects under their care will receive, there will be abundance for them. They will be renewed. They will be refreshed. They will flourish. How much we need this today. Rulers who rule justly. Leaders who lead in the fear of God. 
who know that one day that they will stand face to face with God Almighty and will be accountable to Him. We are just accustomed to leaders exploiting and oppressing the people under their charge, to leaders manipulating, to be leaders leading with a focus on special interests and personal increase of their own wealth. We're accustomed to corruption and manipulation and conspiracies. How much we need, our country needs, this world needs leaders who lead in righteousness and justly and do so in the fear of God, knowing that they will meet him face to face. But David's purpose in giving this is much, much bigger. It is much grander. He's not just simply providing proverbial advice about a human leader and that it'll be good to have a human leader who do, does this. Now, what David is doing is he is declaring the eternal king, which is why he has given this emphatic emphasis on God's kingdom being sure and that he, what he says is actually God's word. It is more than well-wishing. Now, David sees a universal ruler, the eternal king, the one who fulfills God's promise to him, who is going to rule over men. That should be understood as ruling over mankind, over all peoples of the earth. That there comes one who is the rightful heir of God's covenant promises and will bring in this abundant life. But the author, stay with me in thinking through this. The author of 2 Samuel emphasizes in a rather unusual way that our hope for abundance, our hope for an abundant life is not going to be found in any human being. And the way that the author of 2 Samuel does this, rather unusually, is he does so in the way that he writes the biography of David. Typically, when you read a biography of a leader, there is a part of you that is left longing for that leader. Oh, if we could only have leadership like that. And so First and Second Samuel is written, this biography of David, and we read that David is a man after God's own heart, that David was the king that God raised up for himself, that David is the conqueror of Goliath, David is the bearer of God's covenant, and how easy it would be for the book of 2 Samuel to end with us having the feeling, oh, if only we could have a leader like that again. If only we could have the faith of David. If only we could have someone lead us that loved, us, that loved the Lord like David loved the Lord. If only he were still around. Today, people have different longings for their leaders. Oh, if only we could have a president who is like Ronald Reagan. If only we could have the type of international leadership like we had during World War II. If only we could have this type of person, if only they were still around. A lot of biographies leave, leave you with that longing. But the writer of 2 Samuel does something completely different. He gives, puts this shocking ev- emphasis that the abundant life that God has promised, this life of refreshment and sprouting and invigorating life, is not found in a human king. And the way he does that is a little bit like this. How many of you here are, are Ravens fans? Wow. Okay, how about Steelers fans? All right, all right. I was going to use a Baltimore illustration. I'll go to Steelers. All right. Okay. So, imagine that you are watching a documentary on the glory Ben Roethlisberger, who is such an amazing quarterback, the youngest quarterback ever to win a Super Bowl, has three Super Bowl rings, 
that he has set more passing records than any other quarterback in the NFL. He has more touchdowns in the single game than any other quarterback. He has more, more football games with four touchdown passes than any other quarterback in the league, and his, and, his passing, and his passing records go on and on and on and on. And so you are watching this documentary of Ben Roethlisberger, and you are just bleeding black and gold. You have got two terrible towels, and you are waving them upon yourself and upon yourself, and you're thinking, oh, this is so awesome to have Ben Roethlisberger as a quarterback. Who was going to come after him. And so you are just delighting in the glory of what a remarkable quarterback you have had and the quarterbacks that have gone, that, and the quarterbacks that have gone before in the Steelers' lore as the greatest, in your opinion, greatest football organization that has ever occurred. And then the documentary ends like this. Ben Roethlisberger was suspended six games without pay for personal conduct violations. He has settled out of court with all of his accusers of sexual assault. Roll the credits. You'd be like, what is that? Right? You'd have this feeling like, I, I, I was so, oh, oh. I, I, do we want another Ben Roethlisberger? I, I, I don't know. And your Steelers fans are going, I wish you'd use the Ray Lewis illustration right now. <laughs> and you're like, oh, huh. That's exactly what the writer of 2 Samuel does. And that 2 Samuel goes through David's life, all the things that got David's responses of faith, all the positive things that David has done, but it ends highlighting David's sin and highlighting David's failure. Look what happens. We're in chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. The rest of chapter 23 lays out David's mighty men. We looked at them two weeks ago. These are the men of Israel who were these ultimate warriors, the 30 mighty men who, to, who fought down lions, who, who defended lentil fields from pilfering Philistines who were going to have lunch. These are the mighty men who broke through the Philistine lines to get David a glass of water because he wanted a glass of water. These are the heroes of Israel, the best warriors that have ever happened. And it lays out the list of these mighty men, and here's how it ends. And there was Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. And of David's greatest warrior, there was the one that David had an affair with his wife and arranged for his murder. Oh yeah, let's not forget about him. And then it goes into chapter 24. And chapter 24 is about David's sin with the census. And how the people of Israel had sinned and there was a pestilence that came upon them and 70,000 people died. And David himself needed to confess his own sinfulness to the Lord. And here is how the story ends in 2 Samuel. This is how the book ends. And David built there an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Why? For his sins and the sins of the people. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. Roll the credits. I believe why the author of 2 Samuel does this is he, gives us, he leaves us with this uncomfortable feeling of like, <sighs> he leaves us that way to create within us a longing not for a person, but a longing for the eternal king. A longing for the one who is not going to be like David, but the one who is going to be greater than David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a rebuke for us in this. And a rebuke for us that the scripture is trying to, the author is trying to strongly emphasize, is he is saying to you and to me, stop looking for some person to satisfy the deep longings in your soul. Stop looking for a leader of your country to be the answer. 
Stop looking for another person in your life to be the one that's going to make your life right. How easy people look for things and say, oh, you know, if only. You know, I've got this empty, gnawing, nagging in my life. Oh, if only I could marry the right person. Then my life would be complete. And then it turns into, oh, if only my spouse would love me the way that I would want my spouse to be loved, I wouldn't have to have such turmoil and heartache in my life. If only my spouse could be the person that I wanted them to be, if only I could have that ideal figure that doesn't exist, if only I could be married to them, then my life would be okay. You say, if only I was raised in a home that had parents who loved me, parents whose own relationship wasn't so dysfunctional and messed up. Parents who paid attention to me, parents who affirmed me in some capacity, maybe even just, just a little bit, if only I could have that, if only I could have had a good parent, a good role model, someone to notice me, then my life would be, oh, would be at least make some sense, then my life wouldn't, be so hurt, wouldn't hurt so much. And what Second Samuel was saying, no, don't look for any person to satisfy the deep longing in your heart because David was about as good as they come and he was an utter failure and he could not be the one that satisfied. No, what you need to look for is the one who is greater, the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is in him that the deepest yearnings of your soul are satisfied. It is in Jesus Christ alone that an abundant life is found. In fact, Jesus Christ, David's descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, he did not shy away from declaring this truth that the abundant life is found in him. He says this, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Life, abundantly, life beyond measure, an extraordinary life, an abundant life that is not dictated by your circumstances, but a quality of life that flourishes regardless of the circumstances that you face. Do you have that? Do you, do you have this type of abundant life that Jesus is describing? Let me suggest to you, rather firmly, that if you are not experiencing this type of abundant life, it is because you are looking to something or someone else to be your king. You are looking to someone or something else besides Jesus to satisfy the aching that is there in your life. And this is true whether you are a Christian or you're not a Christian. That you are looking for things. Maybe it's your personal security. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's that relationship. Maybe it's a parent, the approval of a parent. You're looking for those things to satisfy you, and it leaves you, it overpromises and underdelivers, and it leaves you more empty, more gnawing, and unsatisfied. It's because that you are looking to something else as your king. There is something else that you worship and bow down to. Maybe it's yourself that you determine that you're not going to bow the knee to anybody but yourself. You're going to call your own shots. And somehow, when you put yourself on the throne, God just doesn't have a place in it. How's it work for you? Not so well, huh? But what Jesus Christ is doing 
is that he is the eternal king, and he says, yes, this abundant life is found in me and is found in me alone. And there is an invitation for you to turn to Jesus Christ, to bow the knee before him, and to say, yes, you are the Lord Jesus Christ. In you, my hope is found, and it can be found nowhere else. But the huge lie today, one of the huge lies today, is that Jesus restricts and everything else fulfills. Jesus wants to take away the abundance of your life, and everything else will give it to you. But the truth is the exact opposite. And so you have this thought and saying, you know what? Jesus calls me to live with integrity in my relationships. But I want to go from relationship to relationship to relationship. And what happens is you're like, oh, I thought this would give me fulfillment, but I find myself being more empty. Greater gnawing, nagging, aching in my own soul. Works the way within your finances. You think, if I have more money and I spend more money on myself, then I will have an abundant life and I can get all the abundance of stuff that I want in my life. The idea of being generous, well, that will only take away from the things that I want. But the amazing thing is the exact opposite happens. And many people in our church would say this, that when they actually become generous, when they actually follow Jesus in their generosity, they say, you know what? I have more abundance in my life than I've ever known before. I have a greater joy, a greater fulfillment than I've ever known. That the abundant life comes through Jesus Christ. And he offers it to you and he invites you to experience it. But the way that you experience it is by turning away from everything else and turning to Jesus Christ and trusting in him as your Lord, as your king, and as the one who rescues you from your sin. David makes that clear in the next section as well. God's kingdom is sure. God's kingdom is abundant. Finally, God's kingdom is exclusive. The second image that he uses here to describe the kingdom of God is this. Worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. What is David's point in this other image? He has been saying and just said that if the eternal king and living in the eternal kingdom is like living under light and sun and rain and flourishing, then the godless, then those who are opposed to Jesus Christ, are like uprooted thorns, thorns that snaggle and ensnare and inflict pain, thorns that get under the skin and aggravate. And the image there is like, and whoever handles these thorns can't do so with bare hands. They've got to use tools like iron and spears, and they gather the whole things, and they're all burned up. But David is saying, listen, there are those who are in God's kingdom and those who are outside of God's kingdom. It's not a very popular message today. The whole idea of exclusivity is incredibly unpopular. It's viewed as bigoted, intolerant, uneducated, ignorant, racist. Take your pick of terms. But there is this great irony in what's, the, what's talked about today is this need for inclusivity. But there is this great irony of inclusivity. And the irony of inclusivity is that every position is exclusive. And the inclusive mantra that's spoken of today is actually closet exclusivity. Let me give you a picture of this. There is a common illustration that's used that people say that all the world's religions are all doing the same thing, that they are like six blind men all describing an elephant. They're all describing different things, but they're all describing the same thing. So one blind man says, an elephant is like a wall. Another grabs his tail and says, an elephant is like a rope. 
And another grabs his leg and says, an elephant is like a tree trunk. And the argument would go is that they're all right and they're all wrong. That they're all correctly describing part of it, but that you need all of the world's religions to describe all of it. That they're all saying the same thing, but they're all just doing different pieces of it. And so, and, and so what they argue is that therefore all the world's religions are just different ways of describing God. And they're, they're different and they're contradictory with each other, but they're really all describing the exact same thing. And for someone who asserts that position, which seems to be a very inclusive position, the question to ask is this. Why is it that you alone are the one that can see the whole elephant? Why is it that you alone are the one who the only sighted person among everyone else who is blind? Why is it that you alone can tell that everybody else is wrong and you alone is right? You see, every position, regardless of what it is, is exclusive. And today, this mantra of inclusivity is really closet exclusivity. And what Scripture makes clear in your own experience would testify is not everyone wants wants the kingdom of God to come. In fact, there are those who are not in Jesus' kingdom who think the whole idea of Jesus' kingdom is a sham. And that the idea of the kingdom of God, it does not attract them, it repels them. They think it's, it's, it's stupid and it's ignorant and all kinds of things. They have no interest in it. And for those who hold to that position, what on earth could possibly be fair about forcing people into Jesus' kingdom who don't want to be there? What could be fair at all about that? And what the Word of God makes clear is that there is no one in hell who does not want to be there. That those who are there would rather be in hell than live with Jesus Christ as their king. And what David and Jesus is making clear is that when the eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns, he is bringing a new order that will purge the wickedness from it. And all all who refuses to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ are outside of his kingdom. But the common approach today is to blur the lines and to make them all fuzzy and to say, well, there really isn't an in and out. There's just kind of all the same thing. In fact, a couple years ago, I was at a pastor's gathering here in St. Mary's County. Always fascinating places to be. And there was a church that organized it. And there was another pastor in our community who decided that he was going to invite the imam from the temple in Prince Frederick and the Baha'i leader and the Christian scientist reading room, and he's going to buy, invite the, uh, the, the Wiccan from the cult, from the pagan society down south, and he invites us all together, and he brings them all, everyone into the room. And we start up and to do introductions, and he begins this way. He says, I'm so glad that we've all gotten together here because we all believe the same thing. And all of us are about the same thing. We all worship the same God, and we are all about doing God's work each in our own way. Which is like throwing a hand grenade into a room of a bunch of religious leaders. So the mantra today is to blur the lines. And that if you hold to the truth of Scripture, that you're viewed as exclusive, ignorant, intolerant, bigoted, racist, figure out everything else that's on there that assertions being made while the people who are making the assertion are doing the very same thing that they're accusing of. But the Word of God refuses to blur the lines. Either you are in or out. And the kingdom imagery 
uses an image of either you're a citizen of the kingdom of God or you are not. Our nation uses the same idea, that either you're a citizen of the United States of America or you are not a citizen of the United States of America. There is no in-between. You're not a halfway citizen. You're not a partial citizen. You're either in or you're out. It's kind of like pregnancy. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. There is no semi-pregnant, right? It's one or the other. In David, in Jesus, and all of Scripture does not blur the line, but yes, asserts that God's kingdom is exclusive, but anybody can be included if they turn to Jesus Christ and they confess their need for him and they trust in him and say, you, Lord, I have run to everything else, but you, Lord, are my king. You, Lord, are the one in whom all of my desires are found. You, Lord, are the one who satisfies the deep, deep aching of my soul. And that invitation is here for you today. That Jesus Christ is the one and only eternal king. His kingdom is sure. His kingdom is abundant and it is exclusive. And the abundant life that you are looking for is only found under his rule and in his kingdom. May we submit ourselves and worship our Lord and Savior, the King, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the certainty and the surety of your word. For Lord, when we look at our circumstances, it would not seem like your kingdom will come. It does not seem like your kingdom will come. But Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and my friends who are gathered here today, some of whom who are looking to everything but you for satisfaction in their life. And it leaves them more empty with a greater gnawing, with a greater sense of meaninglessness, a greater sense that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy. And you, Lord Jesus, are the one who gives life and gives it abundantly. So, Father, I pray that you would spend your spirit, that you would meet each of us where we are in our spiritual journeys today and draw people to you. Lord, for those that are investigating Christianity and trying to figure out if, this, if the church makes sense, whether or not they want to try this again, Lord, would you speak to them? Would your, would your spirit draw them close to you that they would yearn to know the abundance that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ? We pray this in your son's name. Amen.